You're listening to Faith in Politics, presented by Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison. Coming up this month, we have an interview with Alan Milburn. Alan Yates of the URC joins us for the monthly musing, and as ever, our rundown of the month's news. Thank you for joining us. So it's been a really fascinating month, um, both weather-wise and news-wise, so we're looking forward to exploring that. But just before then, um, we'd just like to do a bit of a shout-out for the band that recorded our jingle. Um, They're called Fervour, and they've got a new album coming out, which is called Taking Flight. Um, It's released on the 5th of April, and we've heard some of the tracks, and they're incredible. Um, It's a really great album and, and definitely worth a listen. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify... Um, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. And um, they're also going on tour, so you can check out their Facebook page um, with all the tour dates. They're going to Bristol, Manchester, Birmingham, Stratford-upon-Avon, and they're finishing off in London on the 30th of May. So please do check them out. They're great. I mean, as you can hear, our jingle's incredible. So, um, yeah, um, check them out and download their album as much as possible to support them. Thanks. So, um, Helen, how's your month in Parliament been? Anything exciting happened? Um, well, it's, it's, been, it's been lovely as ever. It's been lovely as ever, so my focus really has switched from refugee issues to education policy, uh, which is very interesting. I've read a lot, of, um, just read a lot recently about sort of educational disadvantage and the teaching crisis and where the profession is up to at the minute. So it's interesting to have a new area of study, really, to focus on. Mm, it does sound fascinating. Um, my month's been a bit different, actually. Um, obviously, a lot of work going on on Brexit and devolution issues um, and continuing DCMS um, bits and pieces ticking over. But we've had the Haiti All-Party Parliamentary Group um, meeting this month to discuss the situation in Haiti um, with the Oxfam scandal of sexual, sexual exploitation by um, Af- by international actors after the um, after the earthquake in 2011, and we had ev- evidence being given by the head of international programmes at Oxfam. We had some international lawyers there. We had um, DFID represented, and a lot of Haitians turned up and gave lots of interesting input. It was really great to see how together we can work to rebuild trust in the international development sector and how much you know, um, want and need there is for that at the moment. So that was really heartening, actually, um, and I'm still writing up the notes, but, um, yeah, it was a really great event, and I'm pleased that so many people turned up and were interested and engaged. Um, So, but what's been going on in Parliament recently to do with the news, Helen? Have you got anything um, interesting that you want to share? Uh, Well, as recently as yesterday, uh, Christopher Wiley, who is the whistleblower um, at the heart of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, appeared before the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Um, so he gave evidence, I think it was around around three hours in the end, um, based on his role in setting up the company and the company's involvement with the, the Vote Leave um, campaign uh, for, the, for the referendum. Among the claims that he made um, was that had they not used the tactics uh, that they had in terms of um, data analytics and what's different here, um, is that this isn't data that people consented to being used. Like Data has been used for campaigning purposes since the dawn of time. As someone put it in the Lords in an urgent question about it yesterday, it's as old as democracy itself. Um, but these sort of particular methods that they have used um, arguably circumvent electoral law. And Christopher Wiley claims that had this not been the case... So he claims that the, the Leave campaign deliberately overspent... 
um, that the methods that they used to harvest data in his words um, were, were against the law and that if this weren't the case we might have had a different outcome in the referendum. And as he put it, and this really sums it up for me, um, a lot of people supported Leave because they believe in the application of British law and British sovereignty. And to irrevocably alter the constitutional settlement of this country, settlement of this country on fraud is a mutilation of the constitutional settlement of this country. Thoughts. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, I mean, oh, we talking. I was talking to the other day, and a lot of people coming off Facebook and stuff because of this. I think if you think that you can get a free platform without data, your data being used and shared, which it already is, that's that's kind of. I think that's a bit naive. They're going to use your data, and they already do for advertising. All your advertising is. Um, is funneled um, and chosen by the data they have on you. What is more upsetting, what more concerning is that this data has been um, basically stolen and used illegally, mm-hmm. um, and that's by Cambridge Analytica. So I think the backlash against Facebook is right that they need to like sort out making sure the data is not used illegally once it's left them. But I mean, I don't think I think the big exodus from Facebook by some people is kind of. Um, seems a little bit odd um, but yeah I think it's fascinating and, and also I mean, looking just beyond the UK, the Leave campaign, looking at Kenya, looking at the Trump campaign mm-hmm. looking internationally at things that are going on it's quite worrying for like democracy and for um, the you know, getting the people you know, your vote really matters of course, you know, whether your vote matters or not so I think it's, it's interesting and I'll be, it'll be, see what happens what the backlash is in Parliament will be fascinating over the next couple of weeks especially in response to urgent questions etc etc and as you very rightly highlighted this isn't about remain or leave this isn't about how you voted this is about the democratic process itself and the integrity itself and the powers particularly that the information commissioner has or does not have to investigate these sorts of companies well the information commissioner um, said that Cambridge Analytica were extremely uncooperative. She essentially needed a warrant before she could even investigate anything. So if these are the powers that are in law as it stands, then we've got a big problem, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds and see what happens and see um, you know, who gets embroiled in it. Um, but on to another piece of news, which I thought was really interesting today, as somebody from the North... Um, the Children's Commissioner has released a report um, on education which says that young people in the North um, have a double whammy of dis- um, of being disadvantaged in the sense that if you're from a poor background in the North, you also have the um, problem of having lots of poor schooling, especially at secondary school age. Just a clarification, the North in this um, report is the Yorkshire and Humber region, the North East and the North West. Um, and and she said that too many children in the north are facing the double whammy of entrenched de- um, deprivation and poor schools. They're being left behind, and we need to ask why a child from a low-income family in London is three times more likely to go to university than the child who grows up at Hartley Pool. I mean, three times is quite unbelievable. It's, it's absurd, yes. And similarly, in the, the Milburn report, which we shall discuss uh, later in the programme, um, it was found that a child living in one of England's most disadvantaged areas is 27 times more likely um, to go to an inadequate school than a child in the most advantaged. 
Yeah, and I mean, the problem, I mean, I talk about this ever, I'm from the north, and um, what happened in London in the education system was that they pumped loads of money in, and lots more children got better education. And that's a really, you know, and they're not doing that in other parts of the country, and they haven't in the north, and they haven't invested in education, they've got a high turnover of teachers, and a lot of the schools, secondary schools especially, just aren't resourced to help young people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds. And that's such a shame, because, you know, we've got the northern powerhouse, people keep talking about devolved powers into the northern regions, well that's going, but not much funding's going, and the trickle-down economics of the northern powerhouse aren't working still waiting yep yeah we're still waiting for it and it only helps the northwest it doesn't help the northeast or the humber and yorkshire region and so i get very frustrated about this because you know these reports come out quite regularly about you know um northern schools and northern young people not being um as invested in and it just happens again and again and again and it's too late now you know we're losing generations of people being well educated and being able to go to university and having the same same opportunities as people in London. So, yeah, so I got quite exercised about this <laughs> issue this week. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think we just need more investment in the regions. Funding is a massive issue. And that's part of why it was that London schools went from almost the worst in the country to the best in the space of about 15 years. Don't get me wrong, it's not the, the sole factor. There are other things at play here. Um, but the sooner we understand <laughs> um, just how necessary it is to invest in, in our children the better. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's, there are two main news stories of this month. And now to the monthly musing. Hi, I'm Alan Yates, the General Assembly Moderator for the United Reformed Church. I took part in the four-day mission to Cumbria from the 8th to the 11th of March. This was a brilliant example of ecumenical working between the Church of England the Methodist Church, the Salvation Army and the United Reformed Church. I have to take my hat off, well, if I had one on anyway, to James Newcomb, Bishop of Carlisle, for the way he has welcomed our denominations working together. What an example and what a mission. Anyway, in one of the Q&A sessions I took part in over the weekend, I was asked if politics and religion mix. Given that politics deals with the governance of people and their rights, responsibilities and behaviours, and that Jesus is also interested in our rights, responsibilities and behaviours, simply defined by love your neighbour as yourselves, I cannot see how Christians can avoid being engaged in politics. During the party conference season, I, along with other church leaders, went to the Conservative Party conference. One of our key topics of conversation was universal credit, and we focused our energies on getting the six-week wait between assessment and first payment reduced, which it was. Praise the Lord. Whilst in conversation with one of the MPs, who is a committed Christian, I asked what we, the churches, could do better. He gave a surprising answer. Join the political parties, he said. Anyone, not just his. And get your voice heard. Make sure the parties clearly hear the voice of Christians today. I am unequivocal about our involvement in politics. Christians need to get involved in politics to make sure the political policies and programmes 
reflect the love of Jesus. I'll leave it with you as to whether you see party membership as one way of doing that. Many blessings to you all. Um, a very warm welcome to our listeners to the third episode of Faith in Politics. Uh, we are here today with Alan Milburn. Alan, thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed by us today. Great pleasure. And for, for any listeners unaware, we have a quick uh, bio. Alan was born in Durham in 1958 to a single mother and grew up on a council estate in the West End of Newcastle, an experience which shaped his politics. He studied history at Lancaster University, where he has been Chancellor since 2015. In his student days, he was a CND activist and later ran a small Marxist bookshop called Days of Hope. Uh, stop me if anything we have read is, <laughs> is inaccurate. Um, he went on to Newcastle University to undertake a PhD on the origins of radicalism in the Northeast before abandoning it in favour of local politics, notably a campaign to save Sunderland's shipyards. He quickly rose up, in, rose up the ranks in Blair's cabinet and indeed was deemed by the Telegraph the most ultra of ultra Blairites. He served for five years, first as Chief Secretary to the Treasury, then Secretary of State for Health, and ran Labour's 2005 election campaign. MP for Darlington for 18 years, he stood down in 2010 to spend more time with his wife and two sons. Alan chaired the Social Mobility Commission until December last year, when he ceased his involvement on the basis that the government was unable to commit to the Social Mobility Challenge. Uh, these days he acts as an advisor for a wide range of organisations, um, and it's perhaps the work that you're best known for at the minute. In my research I found it quite difficult to find you mentioned anywhere without being prefaced with Labour's social mobility star, um, Alan Milburn. Um, and you have said yourself, of having been born in 1958, um, I was very lucky. I was probably part of the most socially mobile generation this country has ever seen. Um, and that's a calls close to my heart as well. My parents, born in 1961, uh, were part of that generation as well. Um, I sometimes think how different my own life would have looked um, had that not been the case. Um, of course, as we know, many children these days aren't lucky enough to grow up in a country where, um, as Michael Gove has said, rich, thick kids do better than, than poor, clever ones. Uh, so if you just wanted to take us very quickly through the, the key findings of the most recent report um, that you produced with the Commission, and just tell us a bit about why social mobility is so important to you. Well, I get, uh, as you r- rightly quoted, I, I, I feel incredibly lucky in my life um, you know, to have grown up in a council estate and ended up in the Cabinet. Um, and it's probably a good thing in public policy and politics if you've had something for yourself to want it for others Um, and I don't think it should just be a matter of luck about whether people get on in life Um, I've personally never really taken the view that it's ability that is unevenly distributed in society it's more opportunity in my view I had lots of opportunities I was literally born at the right time the academics by the way say that 1958 was the peak year for social mobility so I really did get lucky right (laughs) so it was really it was the moment when essentially the economy was changing women's role in society was about to change Mm -hmm. uh, but the economy was also changing from essentially a a blue collar to a white collar economy so there are lots of opportunities for people to move up in life and I you know I was one of that, that generation um, wind forward 60 years and uh, those opportunities look somewhat more constrained um, you know the promise that my generation was brought up with was that each generation would do better than the last one unfortunately that's a promise that is now being bro- broken 
Um, you know, those born in the 1980s are the first post-war generation not to start their working years with higher incomes than their immediate predecessors. Think of something like home ownership, which has been the aspiration of millions of ordinary people down the generations. It's in sharp decline amongst the young in particular. And today, only one in eight kids from a low-income background will end up being a high-income owner as an adult. So we have got a problem. And in fact, it's more than a problem. In my view, we've got a social crisis. And it's a crisis of division. It's a crisis which expresses itself through social resentment. And it's a crisis that, if it continues, would lead to our country being ever more divided. And that is not, I don't think, the sort of country that most people aspire for Britain to be. So we've got to do something about it. Uh, you have said as well of your commission, um, and of your, your resignation rather, or your, your lack of involvement, and of course the entire commission resigned alongside you um, on the basis that no progress had really been made. Um, you said that the government had neither the ability or the willingness to put their collective shoulders to the wheel when it came to delivering uh, social mobility. Um, so if the problem here is not only that the state is disinclined, but that they're unable to fully act on this problem, um, what do you see as, as the answer um, to this, this crisis, as you so put it? Of course, you had flagged that Brexit was an issue, and working in Parliament myself, that was something that I very much saw, that everything else has been completely, more or less, ground uh, to a halt as the withdrawal bill goes through. What are the answers here? Well, politics is very important in addressing the social mobility problem. So it can't be written off. Um, and one would hope that... Some of the things that the government has said are mirrored in what they do. Um, so, you know, Mrs May, I've got no doubt that Theresa is personally deeply committed to social justice, for example. She's championed very unfashionable causes in her time, uh, particularly as Home Secretary, when you think of modern slavery, for example, uh, or mental health services for prisoners in the criminal justice system and so on and so forth. Um, but the problem right now is that the government is obviously in a very weak position. It lost its majority and it's got the most intractable and difficult problem, arguably, that any post-war government has had to deal with, which is the issue of Brexit. So really there isn't the headspace, there isn't the bandwidth, if you like, for government to get serious about um, a big domestic policy agenda, in this case, the question of social mobility and greater fairness in our society. So, so if the answer in the short term isn't going to come from politics, where is it going to come from? And here I'm a bit more optimistic, because I think there is a real appetite in civil society for change. I think people know that the proposition that we've lived with over the last few decades, which is one of untrammeled wealth for a few at the top, um, stored life chances for those at the bottom and growing insecurity for many in the middle is not really a sustainable proposition for the country. And the really heartening thing from my point of view, doing the social mobility work for, I've, you know, I've worked for three successive Prime Ministers, a Labour one, Gordon Brown, a Coalition one, David Cameron, and now Theresa May is a conserv leading a Conservative government. Um, and I think there have been undoubtedly some changes and undoubtedly there's been some progress. The biggest progress has been in civil society, where the penny is really dropped amongst employers, professions, universities, schools, that they have a responsibility to do what they can to improve life chances, particularly for those at the bottom end. And, uh, and so I think we need a big coalition 
in civil society where all of these organizations, local government, local mayors, come together and decide what it is they can do in their communities, in their organizations, their institutions to make a difference. And so one of the things that I want to now move on to is, frankly, less of a focus on public policy, because as I say, I've sort of written that off for now, just because of the whole Brexit thing and the state of politics. Um, but I think where the action is going to be is in civil society. So with my fellow former commissioners, we're going to create a social mobility institute to work alongside the universities, the schools, the employers, the professions, the mayors, the local councils, to help them do what they want to do, but sometimes not knowing how they can do it to improve the social mobility prospects of the people that they have some responsibility for. But if I may turn um, quickly again one more time back to policy and to, to structural factors, um, something that you have flagged in the past, I'm thinking particularly of an interview with um, the Child Poverty Action Group in 2014, and this would be a huge concern of JPITS as well, is the relationship between work and poverty mm -hmm. and how on a structural level poverty has very much changed in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, you have said that's been a big fundamental change in the nature of poverty over the course of the last two decades, um, that work helps but it's not a cure for poverty. Um, so when we have a benefit system uh, that is structured around the idea that, that work pays, mm -hmm. uh, that the best way to tackle inequality is to Im and improve the lives of those at the bottom, um, is to, to get people into work, uh, then, then where do we go from there? Where, for instance, how, for instance, rather, do we make work pay? Well, that's where employers have such an important responsibility. You know, there is a role for the state here. Over the course of the last two years, two decades, the guiding philosophy has been for successive governments, if we could get people off welfare into work, social progress would automatically follow. Um, and indeed, people have been got off welfare into work. We have record levels of employment, for example, so more people are in work than ever before. However, we also have 5 million people who are the working poor, people, largely women, um, who are doing all the right things, standing on their own two feet, going out to work, looking after their families, but they simply don't earn enough to escape poverty. So something has changed quite fundamentally in the nature of who the poor are today. Mm -hmm. You know, when I came into office as a government minister, the majority of kids officially designated as being in poverty were in a household where no one was in work. Today, two in three children who are officially classified as poor live in a home where at least one parent is working. So we've got a real problem, and that's why measures like the uh, national minimum wage introduced by the Labour government, the national living wage introduced by a coalition government, and the voluntary living wage, which many employers subscribe to, is really important because it's a means of lifting people's pay. What we also need to do, and this is where the work with employers is so vital, you know, we did a piece of work looking at how many people who were uh, in work but poor in 2006 had managed to escape working poverty by 2016, and the answer is only one in 10. Okay? And the reason for that is, of course, they're paid too little, but it's also that their opportunities, not just to have a job, but to get a career, are not what they used to be. There is no ladder of opportunity. And the reason why the work with employers and professions is so critically important and this is somewhere outside of the reach of governments, is they need to be thinking much more about their internal labour markets and how they give people the skills and the opportunities, not just to stay in a job, 
but to progress in a career. And in the end, that is not something that a government can do. That's something that employers need to do. And I think increasingly they're recognising that, but they need help with it. And that is, of course, where you're new. Yes, and I mean, in. you know, it's not that the, the, that the, the Social Mobility Institute is going to be the all-singing, all-dancing answer to all of these problems because we're dealing with a very, very big structural change in the labour market, which has taken place over probably the last 30 years. You know, remember in the US, for example, real earnings have been flat for almost three decades. In our country, according to the Chancellor of the Exchequer at least, they're going to remain flat here for the best part of two decades. So it used to be, the economic theory, the political theory too, used to be that if you could get economic growth, all boats would rise. Trickle down economics. But that hasn't worked. I mean, it hasn't worked for a very, very long time. And now the chickens really are coming home to roost. And you can see that in not just the growing social divisions that we have in the country, but the growing geographical divisions that we also have. And that's beyond a north-south divide, by the way. You know, the poorest parts or the parts of the country that are the least socially mobile in terms of education, employment, housing prospects are places like Minehead or Weymouth and Portland and not just the Corbys and the Carlyles of, of the country. So we've got a yawning chasm now between our country's great cities, London especially, and those towns um, in often in rural parts of the country or in peripheral parts of the country, coastal towns, for example, that are just being left behind economically and being hollowed out socially. That is where public policy has a role to play. So to turn away from public policy again, and back to your own, um, your own role in government and your own record in government. Um, what was it like to be a minister at the height of the, the new Labour years? Uh, what is it about the record that you would be most proud of? And if you could go back again today, is there anything, having seen the consequences of things play out, is there anything that you would change? It was great. And i tell you why it was great. It was great for a very simple reason, that everything seemed possible. Okay. Um, I think it's uh, fair to say that we've lost that. I think days. we might have lost a little sense of possibility mm. over, over the years. And so we're drowning in tactics and technocracy and we're drowning in Brexit. Well, what there isn't really a, a great sense of hope or of possibility. And as soon as that disappears from politics, you've lost something. Um, and I think it is no surprise certainly to me, that populism, whether of the sort of hard left or the extreme right, is on the march, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic. And it is for a reason, which is that mainstream politics seems to have lost a sense of hope or a possibility. Mm -hmm. And in those days, everything seemed possible. So we were new to government. I mean, the bizarre thing about being a minister is that you learn on the job, which is a bit scary for the country. You know, it's great for us. Good to know. Yeah. yeah. But you are, you know, Tony Blair had never been prime minister. I'd never been a minister. So you're learning as you go. And, uh, you know, I look back on the, those days, of course, there are lots of things that you get wrong. Because you're making so many decisions every day, really. But overall, I feel in particular... Um, I feel proud of my time as, as, as health secretary because the health service improved. You, you know, we put a lot of money in, we did a lot of reforms that were very, very difficult, often difficult for my own side in politics when we introduced market mechanisms into the NHS, you know, more choice, more competition, greater transparency. But and is that something that you would stand by today, com- given the... Completely, this- because, you know, when, when, when I took over as health secretary, people were waiting... People were waiting over 18 months for a hospital operation. 
Nobody waits for that now. I mean, look, the NHS is going through a really, really difficult period again, and that's what happens if you neglect it, both in terms of resources and reforms. You know, but in Labour's time in office, it was not just that you know, new hospitals were built, tens of thousands more staff were recruited. The important thing is that outcomes massively improved for patients. And it's hard probably for people to remember, but I remember it very well. You know, not least because a good friend of mine, a guy called Ian Weir, who was the photographer on my local newspaper in my constituency in Darlington, died waiting for a heart operation. Ian was a young guy in his early 40s with a family, and he'd been waiting over 15 months for a heart operation. In fact, the very first thing that I did was, when I became health secretary, was sort of sat down with the leading cardiologists and others in the country and said, listen, how are we going to stop this from happening? Because it doesn't happen anywhere else in Europe, so why should it happen here? And so we changed the system, we put in some resources, we recruited more staff, you know, we built alliances with the private sector and, and, and others. And the consequence, consequence is that we got waiting times down, not to months, but to weeks. So, so this is the great thing about politics is that when you are focused and when you are determined and when you, I think, have the right approach, you can make positive changes happen. So, so I look at, back at that time with a, with a sense of um, you know, pleasure about what was achieved, regrets about the things, of course, that you get wrong, but most of all, a feeling that we have got to rediscover in British politics that sense of possibility. You mentioned populism and how people have turned to more extreme solutions, arguably in the wake of what some people would see as the pragmatism of new Labour. Uh, what are your thoughts then on the direction that Labour has taken today? Well, I think that um, what you're seeing here is a sort of echo of what you're seeing in many parts of the world, which is the politics is polarising. Um, but the odd thing is that the public are not polarising. I mean, the public, essentially... You know, they want a Britain that is aspirant economically, that is pretty liberal socially, but they want a tough approach, not unreasonably, on defence, on terror, on crime, and they want to know that there are fair rules available on immigration. Now, the very bizarre thing about the current configuration of our politics is that Mrs May offers a bit of that recipe, and Mr Corbyn offers a different bit of that recipe, but nobody offers the whole cake. So I would say there's a yawning chasm which the centre in British politics should really try to occupy. So my message to my friends and colleagues on the more moderate centrist wing of the Labour Party is to step into that space because you know, there's, a, there's a law of supply and demand in politics just like there is in markets. The public are calling and they want this Right now, no one is satisfying that demand. So I think that um, there's an obvious solution, which is that Labour needs to rediscover its sense of purpose. And its sense of purpose is and always has been. How do we ensure that the proceeds of economic growth, which hopefully we can have in our country, are shared more fairly today and evenly than uh, perhaps they are at present? And on the subject of polarisation, of course that is something that people very often attribute to social media and the need for concision and the fact that we arguably live in, in echo chambers these days. Um, we've noticed that you have been on Twitter since 2013, but you actually have yet to tweet. And that funnily, is true. <laughs> funnily enough, there's another Alan Milburn on Twitter who's a Geordie, who is a, who's really quite funny, who we find. In is the he tweeting in my name or something? Not, not, not in your oh, name. Really? Uh, somebody set up my, somebody set my account up for me. 
Uh, and, uh, and I think somebody told me the other day that I go over a thousand followers all waiting for my first tweet. All I can say is they're going to be waiting a long time. That was what so, we wanted so. to ask. Had you point, pointedly chosen not to engage with Yes, it? I have actually. Because and what I was, do you think it means for our social No, look, it's not, it's not that I think it's unimportant. I think it's actually deeply important. I just don't particularly want to be embroiled in the day-to-day guerrilla warfare that it seems to me, unfortunately, occupies much of the... Um, tweetosphere um, so so I you know I, I don't have to nowadays because I you, you know I'm not I'm not a public figure anymore in that sense so um, you won't even retweet our interview no you're not going to be te- tempting me no uh, sadly not but I think I mean I think look overall I would say the the advent of social media the power of the internet it's Look, it has its profound downsides of that. There is absolutely no doubt. You know, we live in a world where the loudest voices and often the most extreme voices get the biggest hearing. Um, And, you know, that is a downside. The upside is that actually it's democratised politics. Politics used to belong to a cabal of members of parliament, political parties and party members. And now it's open to everyone. Because everybody can have a point of view. Okay? It doesn't mean that the points of view are necessarily right. What it does mean for mainstream politics is that you've got to be prepared to have a clear point of view. And most importantly of all, you've got to stop mumbling. Yeah? When I look at the world, you know, it's interesting for me that the US president seems to think that 140 characters or whatever it is nowadays... On, on a tweet is somehow a suitable substitute for well through, thought through policy or cohesion and approach. But you speak of a clear point of view and of course the truth resists simplicity which is why clear points of view aren't necessarily well communicated on social media. Of course. So does that not return to the, the populism that you spoke of that's really of driving a wedge in British society? Yes it is but then it's incumbent upon the mainstream in politics you know whether they're in the Conservative Party or um, in the in the Labour Party or, or the Liberal Democrats it is absolutely incumbent. The thing that kills in modern politics, when there is so much white noise around, with all of this sort of stuff and all of these points of view, clarity kills. And whatever I might think of either Jeremy Corbyn or Donald Trump, the one thing that one can say about them is that they have the gift of clarity. And so it's a really tough call and a tough message but I would say that the people who represent more sensible, more centrist views need to exhibit exactly the same form of clarity. Clarity gets you heard. Well, thank you. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Um, but thanks very much again great pleasure. for, thank for you. joining us and tune in to Faith in Politics next time. You've been listening to Faith in Politics with Helen Byrne and Rachel Allison.